Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That's what the psalmist sings in Psalm 32. Why? Why is it blessed to have your sin covered? Well, because of what the scripture teaches. Habakkuk 1.13 says of the Lord, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. God hates sin. We know that from the first psalm. The psalm makes the distinction between the, the, the righteous and the wicked, and the way of the wicked will perish. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Wickedness and those who do wickedness have no place in God's good creation, and they will be removed. Psalm 5, the psalmist says, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. And so sin cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. It will be burned up and destroyed. And so sin is a problem. And if we have sin, we need it to be dealt with. God is not God as, as the world often makes him out to be in the, in the movies and in the books and in the comic strips where he's some kind of a Santa Claus in heaven with twinkling eyes and peering through his fingers and pretending not to see the naughty things we've done. God is holy, holy, holy. And God will certainly judge the guilty. And so there's only one hope for the sinner, and that is that sin is dealt with. And in the creed, if you look at the, the way that the creed is set up, the articles are divided in a Trinitarian format. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit. So there are three sections. It's a Trinitarian creed. And it's also a creed which, in a very simple way, confesses the two natures of Christ. In that second and third articles, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. The divine and the human natures of Christ are, are confessed here. They're confessed in more detail in the um, Nicene and Athanasian creeds, but here it's confessed very simply. So who God is, that God is Trinity, is, is it stamps his character on the creation. We don't have time to go into it right now, but the fact that God is Trinity, he lives in eternal love and relationship in his own being, is is something which is reflected in the creation he made, and especially in the family. And who Christ is, that he is true man and true God, is key to redemption. And it, it's reflected in the way in which he redeems sinners. So what do we confess here in Laws 14? We confess that the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God. Twice we have the word eternal, and I've mentioned this before, but it's important. We should not think of eternity as a very, very long line which goes back an infinite distance into the past. That's not 
how eternity works. That's how our eternity works going forward. We will live eternally. We, have, we, we begin to exist at a certain point in time, and then we go forward in a line which will never end. That's our eternal life. It has a beginning. But God is outside of time. So the eternal Son of God has no beginning and has no end. And he is the one who created time and space. He is outside of them and not bound to them. So the eternal Son of God, he is and remains true and eternal God. This is the divine nature of our Lord Jesus. Took upon himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary. There's his, there's his humanity, his divinity and his humanity. Now, how in the world does that work that, that one person can be true God and true man at the same time? Let me try to explain that. I can't. It's something that doesn't fit into our heads. Just like the Trinity doesn't fit into our heads, it's too big for us. So that Jesus is true God and true man, we have absolutely no way of explaining how that works. He tells us it is so, and we receive it in faith, and we worship him. How did it happen? We don't know how to explain it, but the Scripture tells us that it is a work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, and the Holy Spirit worked a miracle. And whenever there is the creation of new life, and whenever there is the recreation of life, you're going to see the Spirit. That's His work. At the beginning, He was there in the creation of the world, and whenever Dead sinners are brought to new life by the power of the word. The Spirit is doing that work. He's recreating life. And so, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, God, the Holy Spirit, worked a miracle. And there was the conception of our Savior, true man and true God in one person. Now, the Catechism continues, not just mentioning the true man and true God, Aspects, but continuing to make a point that he is also the true seed of David. Now, if you look at Romans chapter 1, verse 3, the apostle says this about the Lord Jesus, that he was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that the Lord Jesus Christ is not just a true human, but he's not just any true human. He is the descendant of a long line of ancient kings. Not just any kings, but the kings of the people of God, the redeemed and new humanity. And so the Lord Jesus comes to be born as a true human being and to take the highest office, to be the great king of the human race, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the last Adam. Now, why is the conception and birth of the Lord Jesus Christ important? Well, it had to happen because if the Lord Jesus was not a real human he couldn't do the work of redemption and salvation. Hebrews 2 says it this way, Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took of the same things, 
that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The Lord Jesus was conceived and the Lord Jesus was born so that he could die. He became a human so that he could submit himself to the penalty to which we were subject. The wages of sin is death. And somebody had to pay that. And somebody had to pay that enough for all the people of God to be redeemed. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to be a true human being so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So why did Jesus have to be conceived? Why did he have to be born? So that he could die. So that he could give his life as a sacrifice. The scripture says, no man is righteous. No, not one. Through thousands of years of the history of this world, no redeemer arrived and stood up and said, I can do this work. I can, I can save men and women and children from their sins. I can pay the price. I can bring holiness and, and new life. No one can do that. There were great kings. There were famous priests and famous prophets, but not one of them had what it took. There was no one to take us out of the pit. And so God comes and does what we cannot do. And he does it by coming down and becoming one of us. Becoming a human being so he can bleed and he can suffer and he can die and he can pay the price and ransom us and deliver us. So we confess in this part of the creed that he is a, that he's true God and a true man and not just any true man, a perfectly holy and righteous and pure king. Now, what benefit do we receive from this? And that's in question answer 36. Why is this important, all this theology, all these theological truths about who Jesus is? And the answer is this. He is our mediator. Now, what is a, a mediator the first bit, medi, medi, is, means to be between. It means between, like the, the Mediterranean Sea is a sea between the, the lands around in that area. And so mediator is someone who is between two, two parties. Between us and God is Christ. He is the mediator. Between us and God is someone who loves us and who loves God. Now, sin is awayness. Sin is separateness. Sin is that there is a barrier. Sin is that the, the, the relationship is broken. And redemption is fixing that. Redemption is healing and restoring the relationship between God and human beings. Now, how does God do it? How does God fix it? He does it in the most astounding way. He gives us a mediator, someone to bring us back together, someone to reconcile us to God. And this mediator is a person unique in all the universe because in this person are welded together divine and human nature. In one person, God and man 
are inseparably connected. There can never again be a separation between God and humans. Because for that to happen, you would have to separate the very person of Christ. And that is impossible. And so we're in a lot more glorious position now than Adam and Eve were before the fall. We're intimately bound up with God in Christ. And this mediator that stands between us and God, we confess, with his innocence and perfect holiness, covers in the sight of God my sin in which I was conceived and born. The moment we were conceived, we were in sin. That's who we are. We don't, we're, we don't get called sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. And the moment that we could move and breathe and think and act, we did these things as sinners. And our parents didn't have to teach us, did they? Our parents didn't have to teach us how to lie. Our parents didn't have to teach us how to be selfish. Our parents didn't have to teach us how to want the other kid's toy or how to be jealous or envious. These things came built in. There's sin in us from the very moment we began to exist. Now, have you ever tried to cover up your sin? You know that it doesn't work, right? When you try to hide your sin, when you try to cover up, sin loves darkness, sin loves being covered up because it festers and it eats away and it corrodes the soul and it destroys, doesn't it? It destroys trust, destroys lives, it destroys relationships and families. It sucks all the joy out of life. That's the last thing you want to do with sin, is try to cover it up. Sin needs the disinfecting purity of the sunlight. We need to rip the cover off. And we need to expose sin and deal with it. Now, the scripture talks about our attempts to cover up our sins our way without dealing with them. And one fascinating description of how useless our attempts are to deal with sin ourselves, we read in Isaiah chapter 28. The prophet's speaking about the judgment of God and how the people of God are going to try and escape and wriggle out of it and avoid God's anger against their sins. And this is what he says. This is what the prophet says. Very picturesque language here. He says, For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. What's he saying? He's saying you can't hide from the judgment of God. You can't cover things up from the all-seeing eyes of the Holy One. You can't. You are always exposed. Everything is exposed to the holy eyes of a holy God. Have you ever tried to cover yourself with a little blanket that's too small, too narrow? 
it's very unpleasant. I was once in a city in the north of South America, and I was sleeping in a room where there were no glass. It was just bars in the windows, and there were lots of mosquitoes all night long. And I, and the because of the heat, they just give you a sheet to lie on. They don't give you a sheet to cover you. Who would need that? It's hot. And and the mosquitoes were attacking me all night long. And I went to the the bathroom and I grabbed a towel and I tried to cover myself with the towel, but it was too narrow. There's always a spot or many spots where the mosquitoes could keep attacking. That's kind of the, the picture we have here. The covering is too narrow to wrap yourself in. It's a pathetic attempt when we try to cover ourselves and our sins from the sight of the righteous judgment of God. But what we can't do and what we're absolutely unable and capable of doing God does. What does the scripture say? When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born of the law. Now, who is the son? Well, Hebrews 4 tells us. He is one who is, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he's one of us. He has in every respect been tempted as we are. He knows what sin is. He knows the, the temptation of sin, the power of sin, and the, the, the attacks of sin. And yet, without sin, he is pure and holy. And Peter speaks about him. Peter speaks about the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This is really important. The the perfect holiness, the innocence, the righteousness, the obedience of our Savior are so important to us, and they mean so much to us. Perhaps you've heard the terms, the theological terms that the scholars like to use of passive obedience and active obedience. Now, passive, when we think of passive, we think where you just kind of sit there and do nothing and something's done to you. And that's the meaning in modern English. But the root of the word actually comes from the Latin word for suffer. And so the passive obedience of Christ is not that he just sat there and did nothing. The passive obedience is his obedience in suffering. Suffering for our sins, suffering uh, all the agonies of hell, going to the cross, and even having the sun hide its face from him and crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that's the passive obedience of Christ, that he went to the cross, that he suffered and he died. And that, that passive obedience of Christ, is his, his obedience to suffering, washed away all our sins, dealt with them. But the act of obedience, the act of obedience of Christ is that all of his life, from the moment he was conceived, through his whole childhood into being an adult, he at every moment, in every way, obeyed God. He lived the perfect, righteous life that you and I are supposed to live but can't. And he did it for us. And why is this important? Well, because he did it for us. For the first time in history since Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall, there was a perfectly righteous human being walking this earth. And that means something to us. What does the scripture say? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Bible speaks about the great exchange, the glorious exchange, where God took all of the sin and the guilt and the foulness and the shame of our sin and put it on Christ. 
He was covered with our wickedness, with our transgressions, and with our iniquities. And when God saw Jesus on the cross, he saw your sin and he saw my sin and all its ugliness and the sins of all those who are elect in God's eternal decrees. All of the redeemed, all of their sins on Christ. And he did that, but he also did something else. The perfect righteousness of Christ's life, his perfect obedience, his perfect holiness, his innocence, God took and put it on our account. It's ours. So that it covers us. So that when we fall flat on our faces every day again, and we say, Lord, please forgive me, I sinned again, then the Lord reminds us of who we are in Christ, that our sins are covered in the sight of heaven because we are covered by Christ's righteousness. When God looked at Jesus on the cross, he saw a mass of sin that ought to be judged that he ought to pour his righteous wrath upon. When God looks at you, congregation of the Lord Jesus, he sees you in Christ and through Christ. And he sees you as someone who at every moment and every stage of your life has lived in all godliness and holiness and obedience. He sees you when you're a baby. He sees you when you're a toddler, young children, teens, young adults, and adults. And he sees you as perfect and pure and sinless and guiltless and holy. That's who you are in Christ. Now, the psalmist in Psalm 25, he prays to the Lord. He says, Lord, remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. The psalmist knows that if God's going to remember us according to what we've done from little baby onwards, there's a whole list of things that we're ashamed of. And if we were to have perfect memories, which, thank God, we don't have, we'd be even more ashamed because there are a lot of sins we've forgotten. That's how, that's how much we're used to sin. And the psalmist says, Lord, please don't remember me according to my sins and my transgressions. Remember me according to your steadfast love for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. That's what God does for the sake of Christ. He does not remember you according to your sins but he remembers you according to his steadfast love. And his steadfast love has a name, and that name is Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, true God, true man, our mediator, who covers us in the sight of God with his innocence and perfect holiness. And so when you come to the table now, then come knowing who you are in Christ. You are loved. 
You are holy. You are innocent. You are perfect. As loved, as holy, as innocent, as perfect as Christ himself in the eyes of God. So take, eat, remember, and believe. Amen.